For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. This week, New York Mag published a little story about the free press. Maybe you saw it and it was all over your Twitter feed, or maybe you don't even know what New York Magazine is. The title was catchy. It was, we need a free press. Do we need the free press? In any event, I took it as a compliment. I read it just as I landed at JFK, so it felt like a kind of welcome to New York. The piece was kind of lightly critical, but one of the criticisms I thought was fair in the piece is that we don't criticize Trump enough as a publication. Now, partially that's because everyone else does, obsessively, and why try and do something that other people do well? But I took it to heart, and today we decided to bring you, well, Trump. Well, don't get too excited. We're working on that interview. But today we're bringing you what one independent-minded, gay marriage movement leader, conservative who once supported Obama, thinks he got wrong about Trump. I'm talking, of course, about Andrew Sullivan, one of America's best-known political observers and writers, and himself a former columnist at New York Magazine. Andrew was recently interviewed on one of our favorite podcasts, Unheard with Freddie Sayers. That's unheard spelled U-N-H-E-R-D. Check it out. And we wanted to share it with you today. And not just because it's a conversation about Trump, which I promise we will bring you more of in the coming months as we tumble toward the election from hell. But we wanted to share it because Freddie and Andrew talk about a rare thing that Andrew recently did, which is admitting he got something wrong. It's a conversation that's rare among anyone in public these days where people seem so dug in and one that we at the Free Press believe we desperately need more of, especially in 2024. So here's to fair-minded criticism and to changing your mind and sometimes admitting you got something wrong. Stay with us. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. And welcome back to Unheard. Today, we are talking to someone who's become a bit of a friend of the show, the American writer and thinker, Andrew Sullivan. He's going to be looking back at what he got wrong and what he got right on the question of Donald Trump, whose return to the White House is looking more and more likely. Andrew has been one of the most fiercely opposed to the big orange man. And unsurprisingly, the Trump fans will say that he's got a case of TDS, Trump derangement syndrome. That tends to be their claim. We'll see what he has to say about that. Now, a full eight years after his big original essay in 2016, when he laid out his worries that the republic itself might be under threat by a potential President Trump, he's looking back and doing that rare thing of assessing what he got wrong and what he got right. Welcome back, Andrew. It's always an honor to be unheard. So I said it's rare because really people don't like to ever admit 
they got anything wrong, whether they're not just politicians, it's commentators and writers as well. It's a sort of taboo. But you open this week's Substack with a concession that some of your worst fears back in 2016 didn't come true. Let's start with those. Which were they? Back in 2016, when he was saying things like that he would govern the country alone as a dictator, understandably unnerved me and unnerved a lot of people. But then when you actually go back and I looked at that essay, I asked myself, well, what were the things I specifically worried he would do? And looked and see whether he actually did those things. So for me, the most worrying authoritarian promises that he made in 2016 were the pledge to round up and deport 11 million unauthorized immigrants, illegal immigrants. Then he was going to ban all Muslim immigrants from the United States. He threatened his opponents with either killing them or prosecuting them, including, if you remember, Hillary Clinton, lock her up, was the leading campaign. Uh, and of course, he was also a huge enthusiast, and still is, by the way, for war crimes. He loves torture. <laughs> he, threw, now, he was going to legalize torture. He wanted to legalize about that, yeah. And he wanted to make it much worse than it was under Bush. But he particularly likes the most sadistic forms of torture. He's a he's a depraved human being. Uh, but nonetheless, all those things he didn't do. He didn't do. Did he violate a Supreme Court order? No. Did he exceed his authority? In a couple of cases, yes. He did send the military down to the border with funding that wasn't allocated by the Congress for that. But that is not exactly the kind of terrifying thing that one feared back in 2016 when he was suggesting he could do any of these things at any time. We didn't know. And I think it's fair to say that if you don't know when someone is promising to do things like that, you tend to vote against them, as I did. Basically, the authoritarian rhetoric didn't really materialize. Do, do you think that's because it was always just talk and it was part of the kind of tough guy image? Or do you think he just wasn't capable of, of executing on it? Well, what's your analysis of that? I don't think he actually likes the exercise of power. He's not that interested in controlling the lives of everyone around him or indeed most Americans. He's concerned primarily with his own ego, with his own glory, and with his own sense of being right in the particular moment. And so when it comes to difficult things, like rounding up 11 million people, didn't even try. There was some increased enforcement from the ICE, but not much. We know how much wall he built, which is about, about a few hundred feet, which was nothing like. We know how much Mexico paid for it, which was zero. These were huge, huge claims that he would have. Then there were other moments like his, 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 his fear, we, we were afraid that he put troops on the street to maintain law and order. That if there was some big upset, some racial upset, my concern was that suddenly we would be under martial law. Well, we did in 2020 see dozens the of- The state of emergency. Worry. Yes, the yeah. state of emergency worry was that he could declare a state of emergency, assume all sorts of powers, and run the country like a dictator. Well, there were two possibilities for that. One was when uh, COVID happened. And in fact, his instincts were not to assume all the powers. In fact, he did rather conventional things. 
and rather deferred to others. But he was kind of all over the place on COVID, wasn't he? His, his original instinct was to be sceptical, and then he got persuaded by Tucker Carlson that he'd read it wrong, and suddenly he was quite into lockdowns. And we still, it's not entirely clear what his COVID record is, but not straightforwardly authoritarian. Dictator, what you really want to happen is some major event that can allow you to assume huge amounts of power. That's what I was concerned about in 2016. He didn't. Then when 2020 happened, and after the Floyd riots, half the country's cities were up in flames, did he take the opportunity to really send tanks into the streets? No. In fact, if anything, the police were really under-enforcing the law in that period, and we had mayhem and chaos in the streets, streets of America under Donald Trump. Even things like when you're supposed to believe that he ordered the crowd outside the White House during the summer of 2020 to move so he could make some big speech. Turns out, in fact, that wasn't why they were moved. They were moved because there was some pre-existing contingency they had to, that had to be done. So all the great fears and panics about him seizing total power turned out to be uh, overblown. And I think it's, it's worth saying that. I can already tell there's going to be mentions of TDS, Trump derangement syndrome, in the comments. So we have to, we have to address this. What is your view of that? Do you do you feel like you had an, an, a mild case of it, or do you reject the uh, formulation entirely? No. Former President Donald Trump is himself deranged. That is where the source of the derangement is. All we are doing is responding to what he says, and indeed what he does. And what he said was that I intend to upend the entire constitution of the United States and run as a dictator. That's essentially what he said. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. Now, the question is, why didn't he do it? And some people say, well, he was checked by others, and he was. But my sense is he doesn't actually want that kind of control. It's too much responsibility. I mean, it's an incredibly important realization that there, isn't it? I mean, a column you see about every month is, what if there were a more competent version of Trump. You know, people often refer to Viktor Orban as the kind of exemplar of, of the effective authoritarian or the, the populist who also is serious about seizing and retaining power. Well, there's something kind of intrinsic about Donald Trump that is less serious or it's more, and as you write in this latest essay, it's almost comic. He's a kind of, he's more of a comedian. It's always been hard to wrap your head around him because at the one hand, on the one hand, he's talking like Mussolini. On the other hand, he's talking like a cable news host. And you're not quite sure whether he's commenting on the news or whether he's aiming to be a dictator. And of course, one has to bob and weave to figure that out. But there is one element in which he is dangerous, very dangerous to a constitutional republic, which is he really doesn't believe that the laws apply to himself. He doesn't. In fact, he recently, in his Truth Social, has been calling for total immunity for the president in everything he does in office, including murdering political opponents. Now, that's his public position, that he wants total immunity in all caps. Whenever he was caught out personally, whenever he was investigated personally, he responded unconstitutionally. He attempted to obstruct justice. He attempted to get rid of various attorneys general. He clearly tried to rig the election by using foreign policy to get Biden in trouble with Ukraine. There are plenty of instances where he seems utterly unconcerned. Of course, the ultimate is January 6th, where he sits there and allows the capital of the United States to be ransacked. 
and, and have a riot outside of it in order to slow and defer the certification of the election. Yeah, but I've just had to interrupt you for a moment there because we actually spoke exactly like this two days after January the 6th, on January the 8th, 2021. And I remember very clearly at the time you were very exercised by it. And I was making the case that maybe it was more performative or maybe it wasn't a full revolution. And you were saying, don't downplay this, Freddie, you know, don't don't make light of it. Do you now, in retrospect, feel that January the 6th was less sort of republic ending and and awful than you thought at the time? Well, it didn't end the republic, did it? That's that's the main conclusion we have. Why did it not end the republic? Well, it didn't end the republic because the, the general idea that he had was so cockamamie and, and concocted by such loonies that um, the idea, for example, that the voting machines were all rigged by Venezuela or something, these kind of things, he would believe anything at the time. Why? Because his ego could not allow himself to be understood to have been to have lost. So all this was an attempt really not to seize power, but to appease his ego. Now, the same, and so I don't think that what he didn't have links in the military to allow a coup to take place. He had no support in the Senate or the House actually initiating some kind of coup. It was, in fact, kind of an empty gesture. But what it showed him prepared to do was take the Republic to the very edge of the cliff, dangle it over there, and then, according to Wim, whip it back out or not. And that, I think, is just an intolerable level of risk for any society to tolerate in a leader. If you, if you can imagine a prime minister losing, imagine Sunak losing to Starmer, and then because he denied that he'd actually lost. I think we can, we can be quite confident that Sunak is not going to kind of rabble rouse and uh, lead a revolution said, of any kind. <laughs> which he, I know, thank God, he's a Tory. These people are not Tories, they're not conservatives, mm. they are crazy radicals. The critique, though, you're now making is basically that he's, he's fundamentally unserious and somewhat or very kind of craven in his own self-defence to the point where no rules are worth obeying if he can cheat them to get himself out of a sticky situation. Those both seem like quite common politician traits, I think you could say. The rhetoric that came out of the, the Democrats for pretty much the four years he was president was that, you know, this is this is the existential threat. And in fact, Biden is still talking in that way, that this is an existential threat to the republic. He's a fascist. You know, he's this man of incredible danger. And it's it's a big change if we no longer think that is a risk. Well, we do think it's still a risk <laughs> for the following reasons. The entire Constitution of the United States is based upon the rule of law. The rule of law has to be applied, at least seen to be applied, as far as is possible, equally. He has openly stated that the president should be above and outside the law. If he is convicted of crimes, some of which are quite serious in respect to his political position, uh, he doesn't care. He will seek to be reelected to overturn the rule of law with respect to himself. And that's what we can see coming. In other words, we will have an election in which you will say, it's me or the rule of law. Okay, I want to come, I want to, I want to move to, as it were, looking forward. But I've got one more question for you looking backwards, which is, do you think the people who voted for him realized what you were slower to realize, that he's not as serious in everything he said? I mean, 
half the country voted for him. And I, I just wonder whether that's the explanation, that they could see in some intuitive way that this man was, was talking, he was politician, he was talk, saying all of this stuff. He li- they liked the general mood which he was encapsulating, but they didn't fear that he would literally execute on everything he said. And so they were kind of one step ahead of you and maybe all of us. Yes. On the other hand, that's the benefit of Captain Hindsight, isn't it? And when you are facing an election where someone is making these pledges and these promises, when he clearly can't be controlled by anyone or anything else, when he has absorbed the entire party into himself, I think it was a height of irresponsibility to vote for him in 2016. And I also think that in 2024, the very fact that he is now a symbol of lawlessness, voting for him is essentially a vote to abolish the rule of law for your chief executive, which is, in fact, the abolition of the United States. That was the entire point of the founding of the United States, was to restrain the executive. And now we have someone who's claiming that he is the sole executive. He should be placed with total immunity above the law in this in, in the United States and, and asking people to vote for him on that basis. And how is that not an assault upon the very heart of the republic? More with Andrew Sullivan and Freddie Sayers after the break. Stay with us. I mean, a lot of the things you write about week by week are things that the current president is doing, which you could say is an assault on the rule of law, assault on meritocracy, abuse of power with relation to censorship, the media, changing our very definitions of fundamental things we've always thought were clear. Perhaps the energy behind the kind of Trump resurgence is that people feel that rule of law and that straightforwardness has already gone. So they'd rather have their guy breaking the rules than the other guy. Well, that's 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 the talking point. It's it 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 mixes up very different things. There are all sorts of policies with which I disagree with Biden intensely. Um, but Biden has not said the president can rule alone. The Biden Biden has not said I believe in war crimes. The president not said that if I lose an election, I will never concede it. The president, the current president, has not attempted to stop the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, these are acts so outside the norms of constitutional behavior that I think they represent an extreme danger to the basic procedures, norms, and laws of a self-governing republic, which is why I find it still unconscionable that one should vote for him. The other fear, of course, is that he's learned his lesson that in fact, they now has lots of professionals behind him attempting to craft the arguments that will allow him to behave and, and act outside the law and outside the Constitution. Um, he's going to go through the, the, the entire federal bureaucracy, he says, to purge everyone who dis- might disagree with him. There is a worry that, in fact, all the things that he learned in his first term about how to get out of difficulties as president will be will be cemented in the second term and we will have a a, a truly lawless individual in the White House. So is that your biggest fear then, looking forward, that some kind of constitutional break might happen either at the end of his time in office if he wants to stay longer or refuses to accept the result or something along those lines? It's It's the constitutional fear is your number one. Yes, he has never accepted the result of an election he didn't like. 
whether it was his own or anybody else's. You can go through the record. He just doesn't believe that he needs to play by the rules. And he believes that if he loses, it's because it's rigged. Now, when a president stands up and says the entire system is rigged, you shouldn't trust it. You should only trust me. Are you really saying it's a responsible thing to support that person? Um, when he's already shown that he is indifferent to a peaceful transfer of power. Once he tried to stop himself being removed from office, he's told us in advance he won't even recognize the results of this election, coming election if he loses. Uh, so we're headed for a constitutional crisis, whatever, if he doesn't win outright, clearly. I mean, quite possibly we're headed for a constitutional crisis if he does win, because the other side might also not like the result. And you get all sorts of constitutional tinkering being proposed by governors of states who reject a President Trump. You know, they might start, we might start seeing the reverse of what we're now seeing in Texas with blue states not liking the president. There'll be all sorts of, you know, there'll be people on the streets if Trump is reelected, surely. Yes, um, I think there, there will be. And of course, he has already said that he's prepared to invoke the Insurrection Act if such violence takes place. Of course, he won't be able to in November because he won't be president. Uh, he won't be president till January. So martial law will have to wait. But nonetheless, that's a slightly alarming prospect. Um, and uh, the fact that we're at a point where neither both sides are beginning to say we don't trust this election at all and we'll inflict violence or demonstrate against it afterwards just shows you the lengths to which we've gone. And I think it is, it is simply not fair to blame others for this. Others do bear some of the blame, but the chief driver in the delegitimization of the American constitutional order is Donald J. Trump, because he cannot bear a system, any system, that might in any way, at any point, overrule his own wishes and his own interests. So let's posit that he wins anyway. People ignore your warnings, or they don't listen in, in the number that you would uh, like. And that he he basically has a full four-year term ahead of him. Let's just spend a moment on what on the substance of what might happen there. Barring the, the risks you've outlined about constitutional questions, I mean, the one that everyone here in Europe goes on about all the time is this isolationist instinct. I mean, that's what has cut through. That's what leads the BBC News and the Sky News. It's this sense that, oh, if, if Trump wins, NATO is imperiled, uh, support in Ukraine will either just stop abruptly or, or disappear, and Europe will pretty much have to fend for itself. Do you, do you think that's true? Pretty much, I do. Um, not just because he feels that way, because a large majority of his own party believes that too, at least the base of the party, not the elites that are still part of the 20th century architecture of international law. No, I think if he's elected, then uh, Ukraine will be partitioned. Um, and I think at some point, Taiwan will be given over to China. And I think a large number of Americans will regard that as a pretty sensible, sane way of moving forward in the world. And would you be one of those large number of Americans? I'd be pretty close to them, yes. I don't think there is a desire in the United States, and has been really for the last 20 years, for consistent long engagement or support of conflicts far away from the United States. Um, the people whose kids go to fight in those wars don't want their kids to go fight in those wars, even if they're not fighting. 
And a lot of people just simply look at the state of the U.S.-Mexico border and say, why are we spending billions of dollars on the border between the Russian-dominated provinces in Ukraine and the rest of it? Why? When we can't do it for our own border. That's an incredibly potent argument. And the Democrats have... And I guess you, I would have to say, you've also learned there from, you were quite involved in the Iraq war story back, back in the day, and you then felt that you had made the wrong call there. And I suppose now you feel differently about foreign adventures using American troops. It wasn't just that. I think it is just the, the sense that America has squandered its moral authority, the sense that the United States doesn't have the popular support for long-term engagement abroad, which is just a fact, uh, absent an ideological enemy like communism, and the fact that it is not in the interest of the United States to expend huge amounts of money in policing every part of the world. If you're right, Andrew, that would be a huge win by your own calculations there. I mean, it feels, I think, to a lot of people like the world is headed towards some kind of big conflict. We hear talk of World War Three all the time. There's China, there's Russia, there's Iran. There are all these people. The, the world order is going through one of those seismic shifts. And I think people intuitively understand that. And the question is whether it's going to go through that shift with a big war attached or whether it's going to go through it with a deal and a shrug of the shoulders. And I mean, the argument is that those people who support Trump can see that he's not so deeply ideological. They can see he talks about liking a deal. As you say, he's not deeply serious about a particular sets of principles. They say, yeah, that's the kind of guy we need right now to just smooth it over. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think that's there are plenty of reasons policy-wise why I'd be happier with a Trump administration than a Biden one. Let's hear not some other ones. I think it's interesting. <laughs> not least immigration, which I think the Democrats have completely screwed up. In terms of foreign policy... So the I'm border, you think, you, you think he would actually be tougher than Biden too on the border? Well, it'd be very hard for him to do nothing at this point, given how much they've, they've made of this issue. And because the issue is genuinely extraordinary at this point, the numbers of people coming over are huge. And I think if he got a majority in the House and the Senate, he could easily pass uh, immigration stuff. And I think this time, unlike 2016, he won't be bamboozled by people like Paul Ryan into thinking the most important thing is the tax cut for the super wealthy. I don't think that is going to be priority. And I also think that the wokeness stuff, even though I really find him abhorrent in so many levels, if he's the only thing that can stop this stuff from being imposed across the country, across the United States government, then you can see why I might prefer him than Biden, who was given in to the work at every level. But this simply underlines the fact, Freddie. So what do you mean just specifically on the work stuff? You think he's strong on kind of the, the reality of gender difference, those kinds of yes, things? Well, he, the federal government is involved in systematic DEI in all of its capacities, has now as a policy to put equity at the heart of everything. He would remove that. There'd be a, a support for ending DEI in corporate America and in universities, public universities. Um, and I think that he would, he, he's clearly taken out a position, even if he isn't that interested in that stuff, he'd find someone who is. And that's a huge thing for the base. It would happen, I think. And meanwhile, he's not homophobic, especially. Is that fair, do you think? Yeah, I don't think, I know, I don't think there's much evidence that he's anti-gay, and I don't think any of the core 
is civil rights that we've won, the right to marry, the right to serve in the military in any way, in doubt. Um, what is in doubt is whether we should fast track children for sexual transition, which is a hugely controversial and difficult issue. And I think he might help put the brakes on that. So it's sounding pretty good so far. <laughs> you're, you're beginning to persuade me in the other direction here, Andrew. So we've got a foreign policy that may or may not be less involve less bloodshed and lead to greater world peace. Uh, we have the woke stuff that's got out of hand being restrained, potentially a more common sense border policy. What's not to like about a Trump too? The end of the rule of law, the end of the American Constitution, which are far, far, far more important. Is there anything policy-wise? Because I feel we've covered that, and I completely take your point on, on his attitude. The, the only worry policy-wise is that we've known in practice that we've made real progress in delegitimizing the woke under Biden. We didn't under Trump. What Trump does is enrage the left. What Trump does is legitimize the notion that opposition to DEI is actually just white racism or, or sexism, when it really isn't. It's about an opportunity society as opposed to a racially divided society. And so he has empowered the far left in ways that other people have not. And I fear that would happen again. And we don't know quite where that polarization could lead. And he could do some truly stupid stuff that could tear the country apart. Um, and that, that matters. Look, that's why I wanted someone like DeSantis to come out, who was a sane person, uh, who could implement some of these policies, but do it within the Constitution and within the general realm, realm of American discourse. But that is not the, the is. onus has to be on the left in terms of how they respond to a potential Trump victory. I mean, just as you are evolving and, and looking again at some of the, his traits, surely it behoves the left not to repeat their mistakes of 2016 to 2020 when they exacerbated the polarization by completely freaking out about Donald Trump, do you, th you know, do you think places like New York, those, those kind of liberal citadels, do you think they would go as crazy and be as just distraught as they were for four years if he wins again? Or do you think they've learned? Do you think they'll be more phlegmatic and just sort of shrug their shoulders? No, they won't. They'll go absolutely bonkers. But let's talk about which elements will go bonkers. The upper middle class white work people will go bonkers. What's fascinating is that on the policy measures that African-Americans, for example, Latinos, Asians, uh, even some gays are moving in the direction of Trump in ways that in the polling that are truly could be truly devastating. It is perfectly possible Trump will win in a landslide. But I think that's more likely than any other actual scenario. But what the, what the Biden people say is that when push comes to shove, the idea of four more years of that kind of chaos is all the argument that they need. Just don't vote for chaos. Just stay where you are. Things are actually improving. The economy has done better in the United States than anywhere else in the world over the last few years. Um, you know, we are making progress on climate. There's all sorts of things they can say. But I fear they have a, you know, a doddering ancient guy who can't really command the public's attention. You have the impact of inflation. You have the failure on immigration. I think it's Trump's for the, for the taking. I really do. But I am terrified of what he might be and how he might react. And look, 
Freddie, the one thing we have learned is that he's not changing. He's still crazy. He is mentally unwell. And, and, and people laugh. I'm, no, he's clearly unwell. If you is, met someone, is Biden is, mentally well? Well, he's, 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 he's got early obvious dementia, uh, but that's not quite the same thing as being a, a literally crazy sociopath. It just isn't. And we've seen that the office did not tame Trump. There's no one can control him. And I think the idea of a constitutional republic placing itself in the hands of one rogue, mentally ill person is kind of nuts. Do you think the Democrats, there was a lot of rumor today about this Michelle Obama uh, conspiracy oh, that no. does the, the rounds. What's your view of, not her specifically, but any idea that there could be a last minute switcheroo on the Democrat side? Do you think it's possible? Yes, because... Because Joe Biden could drop dead uh, very easily the next night, and we'd have Kamala. Um, look, the main reason they're stuck is because if he were to quit, Kamala would be the obvious rival, even though a majority of the, the party don't like her and realize she'd lose dramatically. But the process of getting rid of her would mean that you'd have to turf out the first quote-unquote black woman um, who, to be president. And and there's some element of the democratic psyche that just can't allow them to do that. So they're stuck with this old guy who's probably going to lose. And, you know, there may be some policy improvements from that, and I'm not denying it. I've been so frustrated with Biden in so many ways. I still have to say that the core constitutional question is primary, primary. It's interesting talking to you because you feel like you're talking to someone whose heart and whose head are pointing in different directions, because we yes. list all the policy areas and you're kind of on board. But there's this one principle, which you believe is most fundamental, which is that he doesn't respect constitutional process and that that just outshadows everything else. Thank you for putting my point of view very eloquently, Freddie. But that is, but let's face it, that is the core question in our democracies. Policies come and go. All sorts of things change. All sorts of governments get things wrong. But the constitutional process allows us to change government, to, to sustain a pluralistic democracy, to have a system where everyone respects the rule of law. Those things are what ultimately matter in a society. Andrew Sullivan, I'm going to leave it there because you've, you've summed it up beautifully. And uh, thank you for talking to us once again. Thank you, Freddie, for having me unspool all my conflicts in public. <laughs> but I, I, I do think it's important for writers to do that occasionally, to just say, look, where, where, where did I, because I don't think my judgment was off, totally off, but I think it missed a few nuances, which you've now learned about. And I don't think my core judgment now is entirely off, but I, I still cannot vote for Donald J. Trump. Okay, I'm going to throw one more question at you, which is that if we get Trump to, and if all of those things that you've said you quite like happen, and at the end of it, he leaves office peacefully and goes and retires to his uh, casinos. Will you then come back on the show and say, I got that wrong? Absolutely, I will. Absolutely, I will. We'll um, speak to you before no, then. We're, 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 none of us know everything, Freddie. We're all pundits, whether we like it or not. We're all guessing to some extent because human life is dramatic, not programmatic. But um, yes, I sure as hell will say that. But I just can't imagine this person changing because he hasn't changed. We'll talk certainly before that. Lovely to speak, as always. Thank you, Andrew Sullivan. Thank you. Please read The Weekly Dish. 
That was Andrew Sullivan. Whenever people are prepared to reassess their earlier viewpoints, and if not directly change them, at least evolve them, we get excited here at Unheard because it shows at least a level of independent thinking, which is what we're all about. So thank you to Andrew for doing that. Thanks to you for tuning in. This was Unheard. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation, give some support to our friends at Unheard. That's U-N-H-E-R-D, unheard.com. Unheard's mission is similar to ours, to push back against the herd mentality and to provide a platform for otherwise unheard ideas, peoples, and places. Last but not least, if you want to support honestly, you can do that too. You do it by going to thefp.com, T-H-E-F-P.com, and becoming a subscriber today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.